Alpine climbing usually requires you to be constantly evaluating all sorts of factors and making decisions, both small decisions of, oh, should I put this cam here or is it more solid there? And big decisions of route finding and whether we should continue or whether we should go down. Transylvania Mountain Festival, I am Anka Berlo, and in today's episode we talk to Colin Haley. Colin has grew up in the United States, surrounded by nature, with the Cascade Mountains as a secondary backyard. He received his first ice axe when he was 11 years old. The next year, while climbing the classic west ridge of Forbidden Peak together with his father and his older brother, he discovered the core elements of alpinism – acceleration, exertion, exhaustion, fear, awe, relaxation, and an elemental satisfaction. Since youth, he climbed constantly, and in his 20s, he emerged on a world alpinism stage through climbs in Patagonia, where he became Rolando Garibotti's climbing partner. His dedication led him to the great opportunity of becoming a professional athlete, to climb nearly full-time, which was his dream since 14 years old. He climbs mostly in the Western Hemisphere, and his loftiest dreams remain big, committing, beautiful, and highly technical. Colin, you have done some of the toughest climbs in Patagonia and quite a few spectacular link-ups, some in a unique style. How much do you think it helped the fact that you spent entire months per year in Patagonia? And how much do you think this helped accomplish these achievements? Um, I think it helps immensely. I have been to Patagonia, I think, 17 times in total. And over those 17 different trips... In total, I've spent about three entire years of my life in Patagonia, so it's a huge amount of time, and I have zero doubt that um, if I had spent half as much time in Patagonia, that the amount of climbing I would have accomplished there would be much, much less. And that's for two reasons. One is simply kind of a question of statistics, because... Mountaineering in general, and especially mountaineering in Patagonia, a lot of it has to do with um, attempting a climb during the right circumstances of good weather and good conditions, which in Patagonia is quite rare. So the more time you spend there, the higher the likelihood that you will have a period of good weather and good conditions. So the longer you're there, the higher your chances of success are. And in addition to that, Just like having years of mountaineering experience allows you to become a better climber because you learn the intricacies of how to climb mountains well, similarly, you can learn well how to climb in a specific mountain range because the tactics that are successful in a place like Patagonia are different than in a place like in Alaska or in a place like Nepal. So learning a certain mountain range, um, I think, can give you a big advantage. Um, in fact, any time I go to a new mountain range where I've never been before, I set my goals much lower than in a mountain range that I'm already very familiar with. Because I think it takes some time to learn a new place and learn what the weather patterns are like and what the conditions are like and, you know, what the approaches are like, um... And 
of course, going to Patagonia many times, I have learned, um, you know, just about as well as anyone what those mountains are like and what are the best strategies to have a good chance of success doing spectacular climbs there. I absolutely think that it's true for probably any mountain range anywhere that the more time you spend in that spot, the higher your chances of doing something spectacular there are. And, you know, I think um, you have, there certainly are lots of other climbers who've done similar things in other mountain ranges. Like um, Uli Steck, for instance, went to Nepal something like 35 times, he told me, something like that. And I have no doubt that his spectacular climbing in Nepal is largely the result of putting so much time into that place. And, um, yeah, uh, Andy Orgler in the Ruth Gorge of Alaska. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a common thing. And I think it's, you know, can be applicable to other types of climbing as well. Um, even like say you're a really strong rock climber, but not a mountaineer. If you are a super strong sport climber, but you go to Yosemite for the mm-hmm. first time, most people for whom that's the case will not have very big success their first trip to Yosemite because it's so different from the types of limestone sport climbing that they've done before. But then if they start going to Yosemite for two months every fall over a period of six years, then they start to do really amazing climbs there because they learn what works in Yosemite and they learn the tactics that are specific to that place. And so I think that concept applies to everything from Yosemite to the Karakoram to Patagonia. The more time and effort you put in, the better you'll be. Well, you're an American living in Europe, and now you have an interesting perspective on things. Which do you think is the difference between U.S. and European alpinists? Um, I think there definitely are some differences. And, of course, they're all generalizations, and so Mm -hmm. there will be lots of people for whom these generalizations aren't true. But in general, um, I'd say the types of alpine climbers that come out of the U.S. and come out of Europe are a reflection of the nature of alpine climbing in North America and in Europe. And I'll say North America rather than the U.S. because... I kind of think of the U.S. and Canada as one big mountaineering community. And most of the good mountaineering in North America is in Canada and Alaska anyways. Um, But in general, in North America, alpine climbing is done very far from big cities um, with extremely long approaches and no lifts, and it's much, much more adventurous than mountaineering done in Europe, which is usually done close to big cities, close to roads, close to lifts, close to huts. So it's a very, very different experience. Um, In reality, most mountaineering in North America is pretty similar to most mountaineering in the Andes in South America. In both places, the mountains are far from the cities and there's very little infrastructure. And as a result, I think that um, North American alpine climbers tend to be better than European alpine climbers when it comes to doing long multi-day climbs with lots of bivouacs. 
um, because if you learn to alpine climb in North America, you do lots of bivouacking and you do lots of long approaches and that sort of thing. But by contrast, most European climbers tend to have a much higher level of technical climbing ability on average. Um, and that's just because in Europe, it's so much easier to do a lot of climbing. I mean, if you are from the U.S., I think the best place to live as an alpine climber is Seattle, where I was lucky enough to grow up. But even in the best place in Seattle, in the U.S., in Seattle, to go alpine climbing, you usually will do two or two and a half hours of driving to get from the city to the end of the road. And then you will do somewhere between three hours to 12 hours of hiking to get to the base of the mountain. Sounds like an expedition. Yeah. And then the mountain, you know, will have very few fixed rappel anchors and mm -hmm. it, the rock quality is kind of lower and, uh, Yeah, it's just the, there are fewer trails, so often you're bushwhacking. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different experience. But as a result, you do less actual climbing than if you're in Europe. Um, because, for instance, here in Chamonix, pretty much any day that you want to, you can do some sort of climbing. And the climbing will take up most of the day, more than the walking will. Whereas in North America, on a typical... Alpine climbing day, you will spend significantly more time walking than you will climbing. Anyway, so that's a kind of a lengthy explanation. But generally speaking, I think European alpinists are stronger climbers technically. But North American alpinists tend to kind of have a better head and experience base for complicated long climbs with lots of bivouacs. And I think for those reasons, European alpine climbers and North American alpine climbers often tend to reach kind of similar levels when they go on expeditions to Pakistan or Nepal or something like that. Even though they have different strengths, they have those kind of strengths and weaknesses even out to some degree. Where do you have more chances of becoming a professional athlete if you're good and dedicated in the US or in the in Europe? Well, in terms of community support, there's definitely massively more in Europe. Um, in Europe, alpine climbing, or at least in the alpine countries like France, Switzerland, Italy, Austria, um, you know, alpine climbing is something that people know about. It's in the newspapers now and then. In the U.S. and Canada, most people have no concept of what alpine climbing is, except they hear about people going up Mount Rainier or Mount Everest or something, and that's as, about as much as they know about mountaineering, that some people go up some snowy mountains. Um, so, yeah, in North America except for a very small amount of expedition grants that are given out, there's essentially zero support. Whereas in a lot of the Alpine countries, they have youth Alpine climbing teams where they teach 
young people how to climb and they're, you know, there are all sorts of events and whatnot. That doesn't happen in North America. So from the community, there's definitely way more support for alpine climbing in Europe than in North America. However, the question of where is it easier to become a sponsored climber, Mm -hmm. I think it's about equal, but for different reasons. Um, I actually think that typically the level of professional climbers in North America is lower than in Europe, as in oftentimes someone in North America gets sponsored who in Europe would never be sponsored because the sponsored climbers in Europe all have a significantly higher level than that. But on the other hand, it's way easier to become a good climber in Europe than in North America because, you know, even if you say you grew up in Grenoble, Mm -hmm. which is not known as like the hub of European alpine climbing, still within a 30 minute drive of the town center, you have probably, you know, 600 pitches of sport climbing and there are excellent climbing gyms and you're a two hour drive from the Mont Blanc Massif and a two hour drive from Les Acrins. And so in Europe, there's so much more resources for climbing and so much less driving to get to climbing that it's way easier to get good at climbing in Europe than in North America, which is why I choose to live in Europe right now. Um, But the level that people expect of a professional climber in Europe is higher than North America. So I think those two things kind of even out in terms of how easy it is to become a sponsored climber, because you could say that it's harder in Europe, but at the same time, it's easier to get good at climbing in Europe. So I think overall, if you take someone who is, if you take two people who are 10 years old Mm -hmm. and they're both incredibly motivated and dedicated, one in Europe and one in North America, they'll probably have equal chances of becoming a professional climber if they really, really want to, but for different reasons. So what does adventure climbing mean to you? Well, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I actually hear uh, references to adventure climbing fairly often, and I'm not really ever sure what people mean by that. Um, I think... uh, I think of climbing as an activity that is both an adventure and a sport. And some types of climbing are very adventurous, while other types of climbing are not very adventurous at all. And some types of climbing are extremely athletic, whereas other types of climbing are not so athletic. So I think climbing always has some aspect of adventure and some aspect of sport. And another way of looking at that is that climbing and alpine climbing in particular is an activity that is both demanding of your body and demanding of your mind, which is for me one of the big draws. Like I don't think I would be so into climbing mountains if it was just an athletic athletic activity or if it were just a mental activity. But I like the fact that it's physically and mentally demanding. And the mentally demanding part, that's the adventure part. So uh, 
adventurous climbing is climbing that is full of unknown factors where uh, I guess adventurous climbing is the climbing that requires a lot of your mind, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at extremely high-end sport climbing or bouldering, that is extremely physically demanding. But I would argue that it doesn't require that much thinking. Although, of course, anyone doing something at a very high level, like, will analyze it a lot. Um, Whereas if you go into the Yukon wilderness in Canada to try and climb a really remote mountain that requires four days of hiking and skiing to get to the base and then finding a safe route and evaluating the weather and the avalanche hazard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is adventurous climbing, and um, and it's much more mentally complex than doing a sport climb. Which could be just a simple state of flow. You said that in a previous interview, that in sport climbing you can enter that flow state where you just think just of the next move but in alpine climbing you cannot do that necessarily yeah. because the environment is more complex and there are more things to think about in the same time yeah alpine climbing usually requires you to be constantly evaluating all sorts of factors and making decisions both small decisions of oh should i put this cam here or is it more solid there and big decisions of root finding and whether we should continue or whether we should go down, etc. In this context um, of alpine climbing, how do you handle fear? Uh, everybody feels it. Is this a particular way you train for it? I definitely... It's never even occurred to me to do any sort of training for mm-hmm. fear. Um, and I think I feel fear uh, about the same as average, I would guess. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't view fear as a negative thing to overcome. Mm -hmm. I view fear as a very important part of our kind of natural human emotions. And in the context of alpine climbing, I think fear helps keeping you making smart, careful decisions. Um, And I think if someone doesn't feel much fear, that would be a dangerous situation where they would be more likely to kill themselves. Um, So I think uh, the ideal is to have a separation between rational fear and irrational fear. Um, Which is? Well, for a... How would you differentiate? An irrational fear is a situation in which you feel scared, but there's no real risk. Whereas a rational fear would be you feel scared and you should feel scared because there's a very big risk. Like an objective danger. So, like um, maybe two examples at opposite extremes. If you are uh, sport climbing mm-hmm. and you are three meters, the bolt is three meters below your feet. So if you fall, you're going to take a big fall. But... You're very far above the ground. You have a good belayer who knows how to give a soft catch. And the wall is 20 degrees overhanging. So it's extremely unlikely that you'll hit the wall. In that scenario, falling off 
would be extremely unlikely to result in any sort of injury. But when you're three meters above a bolt, it's pretty typical to feel kind of scared if you're doing moves really at your limit. And so that would be an irrational fear. And Mm -hmm. you're better off if you can remind yourself, oh, wait, I'm not in any danger here, so I should force that fear out of my mind and just focus on the moves. Mm -hmm. But at the opposite end of the spectrum, you might be doing a relatively easy mountaineering route where you cross a low-angle snow slope on the lee side of a ridge, and there was recently a storm. And so the terrain is very easy, and you're just walking. But maybe there's very serious avalanche danger on that slope. So because the terrain is so easy, it would be very easy to just walk across it without thinking about it at all and not feeling scared at all. But you actually should be very scared in that situation because there's a very real possibility of the slope ripping out and, Mm -hmm. you know, being buried alive by an avalanche. So uh, irrational fear is what you should ideally try to get rid of if possible. Easier said than done. Correct. Rational fear is what you shouldn't get rid of because it helps keeping you making good decisions. You mentioned that um, you don't see alpine climbing as a process where you suffer. Can you develop on that? Yeah, um, I think I've heard a number of people over the years talk about alpine climbing as though it's all about suffering. People, I've heard lots of quotes where people say, oh yeah, alpine climbing is all about suffering. You have to like suffering. And enjoy and, it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, it's just never rang true. Um, and I guess maybe I would uh, say that I can understand where those quotes are coming from, but I don't really view it that way. Um I think that maybe alpine climbing involves lots of physical hardship and being physically uncomfortable, but I think, I don't know, the situations you're in and the terrain you're in is often kind of so engaging and exciting that I still kind of thrive on the experience And so even though it might be physically very uncomfortable, I wouldn't call it suffering. Anything that feels like suffering, I wouldn't want to do and I would just go down. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I think probably when people talk about alpine climbing being, you know, a state of suffering, Mm -hmm. they're probably experiencing it in the same way that I do, I just wouldn't choose to use that word. I guess a way that I would describe it that is different words, but maybe describing the same thing is a, a kind of uh, fun scale that I've heard people talk about in the US. It's kind of a joke, but I also think it makes sense where people talk about type one fun and type two fun. Okay. And type one fun is things that are fun right in that moment. Mm-hmm. So it's like skiing powder. Okay. And 
drinking beer with your friends and uh, downhill mountain biking. Things like that are type one fun. And type two fun is things like most of the time in alpine climbing, where in that specific moment, when you're halfway up a pitch and you haven't found any good protection for a while, so you're kind of scared and you don't want to fall and your hands are going numb and there's snow falling down your jacket, which feels really cold and uncomfortable and the wind is blowing snow in your eyes. In that moment, it doesn't feel fun. But at the end of the day, when you finish the last rappel and take your harness off and you finally relax and you look back up at what you just climbed, you feel really satisfied and you have this like glow about the experience that you just had. And so in hindsight, you say, oh, that was an awesome day. It was really fun. Even though most of the individual moments of that day didn't feel fun in that moment. Mm -hmm. So type two fun is when it's Mm -hmm. fun afterwards. And so maybe that's another way of describing the same thing when people talk about alpine climbing being suffering. I just wouldn't really choose to use that word. You've climbed a lot in Chamonix. However, uh, you decided to move recently. Why did you choose Chamonix? Um, Basically, uh, it might change at some point, but still, right now, in my life, I basically prioritize my climbing goals above everything else. And um, so... I basically decided I want to live in Chamonix for two reasons. One is that it's just super, super fun for me to live here. I have like so much fun all the time living in Chamonix. But two, in terms of preparing myself for my main climbing goals, which I care about a lot, I think there's nowhere better than Chamonix to um, prepare yourself for big alpine climbing goals. Um, There's nowhere else in the world where um, real alpine terrain is so easily accessible. And I think that if you have difficult goals in Alaska and Nepal and Pakistan, um, you know, on high mountains where it's all, you know, kind of frozen alpine terrain, your best preparation is to practice in that terrain a lot. And I don't think there's anywhere else in the world where it's so easy to do that as Chamonix. I mean, you can wake up at 8 a.m. in a warm bed, and by 10 a.m. you can be climbing a 1,000-meter north face, um, you know, full of difficult ice and mixed climbing. And... You know, by contrast, there in North America, uh, that's just so impossible because you have so much driving and so much hiking um, here and no lifts. And so basically in Chamonix, uh, I can just train for big mountains like you can't anywhere else. You know, I grew up in Seattle, which... Mm-hmm. As far as the U.S. goes, I think is the best place to live for people into alpine climbing. But 
there are several places in Canada that are better than anywhere in the U.S. And I lived for four years in Squamish, which is a really awesome place as well. And I actually applied for Canadian residency and was accepted. And I almost decided to move permanently uh, to Canada. And I was weighing the benefits and the cons of being in Canada versus being in the Alps. And in reality, in British Columbia, the rock climbing is just as good as in Europe. The skiing is just as good as in Europe. And the alpine climbing is just as good as in Europe. But it's all so far apart that if you live in Canada and you like to do all of those activities, you end up doing a humongous amount of driving. Mm -hmm. You're always driving long distances from one mountain range to another or from a rock climbing area to a mountain climbing area. And by contrast, here in Chamonix, I climb full time and I don't have a car at all. I haven't owned a car for a couple years now. And um, in North America, it would be completely impossible to be a full-time climber without a car. And Chamonix is probably one of the only places in the world, even in Europe, where you can live without a car and still do every type of climbing nearly as much as you want. Which are your climbing goals right now? Because you moved in Chamonix for them. Um, yeah, well, I guess I moved to Chamonix, uh, for the general goals of, I mean, I guess I have a concept of what types of climbs I would like to do in the coming years. And then I have inside my head a long list of potential objectives that interest me. Um, but I wouldn't say that I have, you know, a list of the next six big things I'm going to attempt. Okay. And um, and even if I did, I probably wouldn't share them on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which are the highs and lows in your life as an alpinist? Um, hmm. Well, I guess if I'm not talking about my life in general, but just my life as an alpinist... Well, I guess if I think about the highs, I just think of climbs that I look back on particularly fondly where I smile at, I don't know, thinking about that specific climb um, or that specific moment. And that wouldn't necessarily be all hardest climbs, but maybe some easy ones that I just remember really fondly as well. And the lowest moments would probably be times when I've had really close calls where I either hurt myself or could have really hurt myself. And um, unfortunately, I've had, you know, quite a few. I've been climbing a lot of mountains for many years. And I actually think that relative to the volume of alpine climbing I've done. I have a really good track record in terms of not having accidents. But nonetheless, I have had a number of close calls. And um, fortunately, the worst I've ever done was uh, breaking my cheekbone, falling into a crevasse in Alaska. Um, but I've had other experiences where, you know, I could have easily died, and I've had a few experiences like that. So I'd say that those are the low points because 
uh, it, yeah, it would just be a shame to not be able to live longer. Which is the best memory from your expeditions or climbing trips? The single best memory. Or just a few. <laughs> or the first three, first two. Um... Because you gave me examples of bad memories, and <laughs> we need to add some good memories as well. Hmm. I mean, yeah, realistically, you know, in 30 seconds of reflection, I don't think I'm going to come up with, like, a very perfect, succinct list of my best memories in alpine climbing. Um, but, I don't know, a few off the top of my head... Um, one of my, like, climbs in the Cascade Mountains when I was very young, when I was 17 years old, uh, was a winter ascent of the northeast buttress of uh, Johannesburg Mountain. And obviously that means nothing to, I'm sure, anyone listening to this podcast. <laughs> But it's, uh, like... 1,500 meter north face that in summer is a moderately difficult climb, but winter climbing in the Cascades is extremely difficult because the weather is extremely bad. It snows more than anywhere else in the world, in fact. And um, I did this climb with a friend who's maybe 15 years older than me, and he was kind of my main climbing partner in that period and one of my most important mentors. And we did the climb not when the weather was good because I was a full-time high school student and he had a full-time job. So we just went climbing whenever we had time, which in this case was during a period of horrendously bad weather. And we spent five days getting up and down this mountain. And each day it snowed 30 or 40 centimeters and was windy. And um, so we had just this like major epic experience on a mountain that you know during good conditions in summer could have just been like a one day you know relatively relaxed trip but I guess I look back on that particularly fondly because I felt like uh, at the time it was a way more intense uh, climbing experience than I'd ever had before and it kind of was breaking into a new realm of teaching me all the skills that you need to go and climb like a multi-day route on a big face in Alaska or the Himalaya. So I guess that climb I look back on fondly because it was kind of like breaking into a new realm with my climbing. Mm -hmm. um, another moment would be um, on top of Cerro Torre after the first ascent of the Torre Traverse, okay. which I guess is another example of a moment where it was the first climb I'd done on kind of a much higher level than anything I had done previously. So it was another moment of kind of like breaking into a higher level personally with my climbing. Um, yeah, I think that uh, a feeling of personal progression is very satisfying So I wouldn't be surprised if um, some of my, like, uh, fondest memories of my climbing career are all moments where I've kind of uh, learned 
a higher skill level or done something that surpassed everything I had done previously. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's place for innovation in alpinism? Of course, yeah. And how do you see that happening? Uh, I think... Um, I've been asked this sort of question a few times, and I think, unfortunately, I always have a pretty boring answer, mm-hmm. but it's what I think is the truth. Um, because I always feel like people are always saying, oh, okay, what's the future of alpinism? And and people always in the media are always portraying things as though everything is a giant advance. Like people are always saying, oh, this... like." the standards are skyrocketing, etc. In reality, I think that the future of alpinism and the history of alpinism are basically the same. It's a long, slow, steady progression where people climb things that are more technically difficult and people climb faster and people climb bigger faces. Um, But it all happens in little bits. I think the way the climbing media works, it kind of seems like every few years someone does something that, you know, couldn't have been thought of 10 years ago, but I actually don't really think that's Mm -hmm. true. Um, You know, if you look back to the 1980s, there were already people doing like incredible alpine style climbs all over the world. And for sure, the levels have risen since then, but it's not been anything astronomical. And uh, and I think it will just continue the same. You know, the general level of technical climbing ability on modern alpine climbers is higher than it used to be, mm-hmm. but not immensely. And on average, people are maybe a little bit more fit, but not immensely. And the equipment is definitely better but compared to 10 years ago, not immensely. And things just gradually, people climb a little bit harder and a little bit faster. But unfortunately, my answer is it'll just keep going as it has. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's an honest answer, actually. That's what I'm looking for. Nothing uh, <laughs> spectacular. So how are your plans with uh, Pakistan? Um. Well, what do you mean exactly? You're planning to go to Pakistan <laughs> this autumn. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting that you ask that. I was planning originally to be in Pakistan this summer. Okay. And that was canceled because of the whole COVID situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pakistan just reopened to foreign tourists last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I am right now trying to decide whether or not I will go to Pakistan this fall. Um, I mean, I would like to. I feel quite motivated to go on a big trip right now. But the whole situation is so different from normal. Mm-hmm. And so I'm having a... Yeah, actually the last two or three days I've been thinking about this a lot and trying to make a decision. Basically, you know, Pakistan just reopened for tourism... And they're very optimistic about having tourism come back because it's an important income generator for the country. Uh, But they also kind of just eased lockdowns that have been in place for a few months. So 
probably the COVID cases in Pakistan will start going up a lot soon. And if that happens, are they going to suddenly say that, like, tourists have to leave? Am I going to be stuck in Pakistan? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, already under normal circumstances, the biggest downside to climbing in Pakistan or Nepal or India, for that matter, in my opinion, is all the bureaucratic hassle. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are so many silly permits you have to have and all these things that don't really change anything for preserving the mountain environment or supporting the porters and cooks who actually do really awesome hard work for the climbing expeditions there. Mostly it's just a bunch of red tape that puts money in the pockets of people who are already rich who live in the big cities. And, um, but there's always some hassle, like you get stuck in Skardu for two days because you have to get a briefing with the Ministry of Tourism, but they're closed because it's a holiday and, you know, these things that prevent you from climbing for no reason, logically. And, um, so all, you know, already under normal circumstances, I always slightly dread all the bureaucratic hassles of climbing in Pakistan. Um, and I'm worried that under the current circumstances, Mm -hmm. it could be a complete disaster. I could fly all the way to Islamabad and then get stuck for two weeks in Mm -hmm. quarantine in Islamabad because maybe the government decided, you know, one day beforehand that that would be a new rule or something. And that sort of thing is totally possible. Mm -hmm. And so those are the reasons why I'm really hesitating and wonder wondering if I should go to Pakistan this fall. On the other hand, the mountains in Pakistan are incredible. Like, I think, uh, yeah, I think probably if I had to pick one mountain range that has the highest number of the world's most difficult-to-climb mountains, it almost definitely is the Karakoram. And so, as a climber, it's a very appealing place to go. And, uh, yeah, right now I'm trying to decide whether I will or not. And uh, I, I'm not worried because whether I go or not, I have, I'm sure I'll have fun and um, push myself in one way or another. Because if I don't go to Pakistan, I'm just going to probably set this fall aside to rock climb and see if I can kind of do my personal best in sport climbing. So it would be something completely different, but I would still feel like I had some sort of goal that I was working towards. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know if I'll go or not. Do you have any recommendations for aspiring professional alpinists? Like people who would like to become professional alpinists? Yes. Yeah, well, it's funny. Actually, every now and then I get a message on Instagram or Facebook from someone who's like 16 years old and they're like, hey, I. I'm 16 years old from this place and I really like climbing and I was wondering if you can tell me how to become a professional climber. And um, even though it seems like kind of a lame, simplistic answer, I pretty much always say uh, if you really love climbing, then just focus all your energy on your climbing and... uh, the kind of professional side of things will just fall into place naturally. Um, I think it's a mistake to say, I want to be a professional climber and try to 
reach that goal, the wiser thing is to say, I want to do amazing climbing. And if you succeed in doing amazing climbing, you will find opportunities to support yourself through climbing naturally. And um, it's kind of this whole uh, concept that I'm alluding to here, Mm -hmm. I think has become uh, like more of a uh, relevant concept in the last 10 years with social media because I think there are more and more people who say, oh, I want to be a professional climber and they put a lot of energy into kind of selling themselves, particularly on social media and less energy into actually becoming the best climber they could be. Mm -hmm. And the result is that they end up kind of living in this uncomfortable limbo where they are to some degree selling a lie because they're always kind of overhyping what they're doing or misrepresenting what they're doing because they desperately want to get more likes and more sponsorship support Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, And, you know, it might be an avenue that works for a lot of people in terms of living a quote-unquote life as a full-time climber. Mm -hmm. But personally, I think I would find that like completely psychologically exhausting and kind of unenjoyable. And, um, you know, the only reason that I wanted to be a professional climber and appreciate being a professional climber today is because it is because climbing mountains is what I want to do more than anything else. And I think this is the most efficient way for me to have the time available to really devote myself Mm -hmm. to climbing. But I would much rather be just born into a really wealthy family and have money at my disposal. And then I wouldn't have sponsors at all. I would just go climbing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and if I wasn't, you know, sponsored, I would just try to pick some job that would give me the maximum amount of free time for climbing. And so for me, it's all just an equation about what will give me the most time and energy available to devote myself to what I really am passionate about. Anyways, another long winded answer, but uh, my advice would just be, you know, if you're truly passionate about climbing mountains or rock climbing or whatever, just focus on that and think about everything else simply as a way to make ends meet such that you can go climbing as much as you want to. And then everything will fall into place eventually. It will or it (laughs) won't. But at least if it does fall into place, it will be because you have really like proven that like if you just focus on your climbing and let sponsorship naturally fall into place, then you definitely won't be a fraud. Mm -hmm. You know, you will definitely be deserving of whatever sponsorship is offered to you as opposed to the other route of kind of, you know, always trying to like promote yourself. You might get sponsored, but you might be a little bit of a fake. I mean, this probably sounds like overly harsh or something, but I think probably a lot of people who are kind of somewhat 
involved or peripherally involved in the climbing industry will understand what I'm saying. Thank you for offering this interview for our audience and we hope to see you soon in Romania. My pleasure. <laughs> again for listening to Transylvania Mountain Festival podcast. If you like our show, feel free to give us a rating and a review on iTunes or on any other app you like listening to podcasts. Until next time, this is Anka Berlo, your host. Enjoy the verticals.